0: We continue with the Beatitudes uh, this morning, uh, the first part of Jesus' famous sermon on the Mount, uh, found at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and which you will find if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you on page 809. And as you're turning there, I will tell you what I told the first service, and that is I'm sure some of you, like me, you feel the loss of that hour of sleep, and so I contemplated uh, preaching on the lesser-known beatitude, "Blessed are the tired, for eventually they shall receive rest." <laughs> but because I know that even in the midst of fatigue, God wants us to hear His word, we will stick to His word. And so my hope is is that He will open our hearts and minds to hear and receive afresh, and to be renewed. And today we come to the third beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Let me pray and then we'll hear God's word. Almighty God, you who have given us life, you who know our every moment, whether waking or sleeping, we pray that you would meet us now and once again that you would open afresh for us your word. And that you would open us to your word. And that you would meet us and change us. That we might believe all the more the beauty of the truth of your gospel of grace. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 5 beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is the word of God. Now, if you are having a job interview, and I'm sure that they teach this at the College of William and Mary, in particular uh, at the business school, that when you are in that job interview and you get asked the inevitable question about strengths that you have, or maybe more specifically about what qualifies you for this particular position, that you should always lead off by answering... Well, I'm meek. I mean, no. Nobody leads off with that. In fact, doesn't doesn't that belong in the category of weakness? That that category you try to avoid or at least turn around into some sort of strength? And yet here in the Beatitudes, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus names meekness as a top ten or rather a top eight kingdom quality. A kingdom of God characteristic. What marks a Christian? So, is Jesus out of touch with reality? Or are we? And I think you know the answer to that one. Because we see here that one of the characteristics that should grow, that should continually grow in a Christian is meekness. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, meekness. What it's not, what it is, and what's promised. What it's not, what it is, and what's promised. For as Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So first, what meekness is not? Meekness is not, as many people think, a weakness. As one commentator states, it must not be confused with being wishy-washy. A meek person is not necessarily indecisive or timid. Further, meekness should not be confused with mere affability. I mean, some people are just naturally easygoing, nice, laid back. It's something much deeper than that. The exact meaning of the original word that Jesus uses here is it's challenging to pin down, but as another commentator explains, it clearly does not mean no brain, no brawn, no backbone. It clearly does not mean no convictions, no courage, no spirit, no drive, no guts. Meekness has nothing to do with weakness. And how do we know this? Well, because there are only two people in the Bible explicitly described by this word that Jesus uses in this beatitude. Only two people. Moses and Jesus. Far from weak or cowardly. I mean, think of Moses. He confronted Pharaoh, the ruler of the kingdom, and demanded, let my people go. And Jesus confronted sin and death and demanded, let my people go. Far from weak or cowardly. In the book of uh, Numbers, back in the Old Testament, uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And then later in Matthew 11, uh, 11 Jesus says of himself, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. Now, though Moses and Jesus are the only ones explicitly referred to as meek, there is one who speaks of meekness more often than any other in the Bible. Probably of no surprise to you, but it's the Apostle Paul. Paul speaks of meekness nine times in his letters, Uh, where he is either seeking to live in meekness himself or calling others to live in meekness. And like Moses and Jesus, Paul is far from weak or cowardly. Again, meekness has nothing to do with weakness. Now, while I was growing up, and when my family would go on road trips... Especially when I was really young, one of the things that my my parents liked to listen to as we traveled was a southern comedian named Jerry Clower. Anybody know that name? I hear. Okay, good. I'm glad there's some. The Mouth of Mississippi. Uh, if if you know uh, Jeff Foxworthy, uh, he he has based a lot of what he does on the style of Jerry Clower. Uh, so the Mouth of Mississippi. I, I would hear these stories over and over and over and. One of the things that stood out to me is that, uh, that Jerry Clower h- had always wanted to play football. And he, he was a really big guy. But uh, unfortunately, in, in the, the rural South where he lived, and I, and I grew up in Georgia, so I can appreciate this, and those of you that like to make fun of us from the South, you would appreciate it, I think. But his school was just, it was too small. There were, I think, only maybe half a dozen other guys in a senior class, and so they didn't have enough to put together a football team. But when he got to college and he went to Mississippi State University in the late 40s, when he got there, he tried out for the team and he made it. Now, that doesn't say a lot for the state of Mississippi football at the time. A guy who's never played makes the team, but he made it nonetheless. He didn't understand the game a whole lot, but the first big game was, was coming up, and his coach said, what's going to happen is, is the quarterback is going to hand the ball to a guy who's going to start running, and I want you to go tackle it. So Jerry Clowers playing defense, and he says he was so excited about this first big game against the national powerhouse Clemson. So they were getting ready to play the Clemson Tigers, and sure enough, just as his coach had told him, uh, the ball was handed to a guy, and Jerry started running after him. He was with arm's reach, and then all of a sudden, wham, he gets knocked to the ground face first, by one of the Clemson linemen. Dirt in his face, his eyes, his mouth, he spits it out, he rolls over, and the Clemson lineman leans over and says, like the Bible says, the meek shall inherit the earth. (laughs) But isn't that how we think about it? The weak will eat dirt. And friends, That is not it. Not it at all. Again, meekness has nothing to do with weakness. So then, what is it? Next, what meekness is? Well, the Greek word for meek, it's translated elsewhere in the Bible, is gentle, humble, kind. And whereas poverty of spirit, uh, the the first beatitude... Uh, whereas poverty of spirit is mainly about one's assessment of himself with respect to God. Meekness is more about one's relationship with God and especially with others in light of that self-assessment. A poverty of spirit is about knowing the depth of your sin and brokenness and thus your desperate need of grace. Meekness is about how that self-assessment before a holy God then plays out in the way that you relate to other people. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient, and kind in all his dealings with others. You might think of it like this. Instead of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, think do unto others as God has done unto you. It's interesting to note that the Greek word translated meek, it's actually one of the great Words of Greek Ethics. Uh, It's defined with great care by Aristotle in his uh, famous work on ethics. And Aristotle taught that meekness should be highly desired. This is something that you should want, that you should go after, that you should develop in your life. And Aristotle described meekness as the midpoint between anger and indifference. The middle ground between excessive anger or rage and the inability to even show anger or or even care. The midpoint is a determined gentleness toward others. A determined gentleness toward others. Now some of you know that uh, I was a, a snow ski instructor in a former life. Uh, right after uh, college, I moved out to Colorado and, uh, and taught skiing there. And, and one of the things that as snow ski instructors that we really liked were days that we would come in and find out that we had been assigned private lessons. And, and the reason, I mean, there's several reasons for that, and some of them are, uh, one, the, the people paying for the private lessons actually pay more for them, and so we as instructors would get more kickback from the resort. We'd make more money. And then on top of that, there were usually big tips at the end of private lessons. And instead of dealing with a whole group of people for the day, you really only had to deal with one, two, maybe three people. And even better, most of our private lessons were only about three hours. And if we weren't assigned to anything else for the rest of the day, it was free skiing, which was why we were out there in the first place. And so I remember going in one morning, and I'd been given a heads up uh, the evening before that there might be a private lesson, and sure enough, I was assigned one. Uh, There there was a a large group of business executives in town. Uh, They were all part of a, at that time, still a privately owned billion-dollar company. And they were having uh, their annual executive retreat at at our resort, and so the, the president and CEO had hired... Ski instructors for private lessons for each of the executives. And I thought, this is going to be great. Until I met the vice president that I would be instructing for the day. So I I meet a guy, he's probably in his uh, mid-60s at the time. Uh, He was very accomplished, highly competent. He always did things well the way that he wanted. It was done right. And I found out that he had never skied in his life. And so here I was in my early 20s about to say, why don't we strap on these slick boards to the bottom of your feet, and then we're going to get on this really slick surface and see if we can get going downhill under control and have fun. (laughs) We were scheduled for the lesson to be from 9 to 12, and then at 12 o'clock, all the executives and their instructors were going to meet in a private dining room at a restaurant at the resort. So three hours are ahead of me, so I think. The lesson lasted less than 30 minutes. This guy got so agitated, so frustrated, and eventually so angry that he just threw his skis and his ski poles down. He reached into his pocket, grabbed a wad of cash, thrust it into my hand, and started to storm off. Now, I'll be honest, I really wanted the money, but... (laughs) I mean, we'd only worked for less than a half hour. And I, and I, I turned and I said, sir, I'm sorry I didn't like skiing, I, but I cannot accept this money. And I held it back out. And he looked at me very sternly and he said, son, when you make more money than me, then you can refuse this. And he stormed off. So, I mean, I put the money in my pocket and I skied, but, you know, I felt about this big. I didn't feel very good. So I skied a couple of hours, and then uh, 12 o'clock came, and so I went into this, uh, this private dining room, and when I walked in, there were about, you know, 20 uh, guys in there, these executives and their instructors, and across the room I see the vice president. And he looks at me, and he starts on this very determined walk in my direction, and I thought, oh, no, here it goes again. And he comes up to me, and he says, Camper, I owe you an apology. Today I treated you with disrespect I dismissed you because I was frustrated And I was angry And I took it out on you I'm sorry Will you forgive me? I was taken aback And and, and of course I said Yes, I I do forgive you Thank you And then he smiled when he heard me say that And he said, Camper, are you a Christian? Because he didn't know And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I am too. And God is still at work in my life. And what I saw unfolding before me was a strong, powerful man in whom God was doing a work of developing and growing meekness. A humble and gentle attitude toward me which was rooted in a true estimate of himself before God and God's grace toward him. The midpoint between anger and indifference, the determined gentleness of Jesus. It's the strength of meekness. Well, What does it say about the meek? It says that they shall inherit the earth. Well, what in the world does that mean? Okay, so we've talked about meekness, what, what it's not, and what it is. But what about the promise, the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth? John Stott points out that the godless may boast and throw their weight around, yet real possession eludes their grasp. The meek, on the other hand, although they may be deprived and denied by men, yet because they know what it is to live and reign with Christ, they can enjoy and even possess the earth now, which they know belongs to them because it belongs to Christ. And then when Christ returns, there will be a new heaven and a new earth for them to fully inherit. Uh, D.A. Carson puts it this way. Only the genuine meek man will be content. His ego is not so inflated that he thinks he must always have more. Let me start that again. Only the genuine meek man will be content. His ego is not so inflated that he thinks he must always have more. Besides, in Christ, he already sees himself as possessing everything, knowing that one day... He will come into the fullness of his inheritance when Christ returns. Okay, back to when I was a a ski instructor. So I remember another wealthy, powerful uh, business executive that I had the opportunity uh, to ski with uh, several times. And I really did like the guy. But it, it was sad to me because over time it became very clear that his God was his position and his power. In fact, uh, one time I was talking to his wife and I said, Hey, what really really gets him going? What really motivates him? What really gets him up in the morning? I was trying to understand him a little bit better. And she just shook her head and he said, Power. He just wants more and more power. You see, his God was his position and power, his accomplishments and acquisitions. And I found out that he could be pretty mean and ruthless. And here was a guy who, from the world's standards, had everything. I mean, he had his own private jet. He had five or six homes, one of which was at the resort where I taught. He had everything, and yet true possession eluded his grasp. His ego was so inflated that he thought he must always have more and more and more. And what was so sad was here was a man who had no joy, who was not content. I mean, and think about it. It makes sense. As another pastor asks, who are the people who really enjoy the earth? Those who grab and push and demand? No. They're too busy grabbing and pushing and demanding to enjoy what they get by grabbing and pushing and demanding It is those who live delighting in God and delighting in God's plans who are free to taste joy and peace now as their hearts are filled with the hope of the fullness to come. Well, we see this uh, more clearly in another place in Scripture. Uh, We're going to look for just a moment at the psalm that this particular beatitude actually comes from. You may have thought Jesus was the first person to speak it, but actually we come across it in Psalm 37, a powerful psalm where David exhorts and encourages the people of God to place their trust in him. Now early in this psalm, David uh, begins, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. And then David closes this particular section of the psalm with these two verses, verses 10 and 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. And then verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek shall inherit the land. Now, who are these meek that would inherit the land and enjoy abundant peace? The meek, according to Psalm 37. Well, they're the ones who trust in the Lord, who delight themselves in the Lord, who commit their way to the Lord, who rest in the Lord. You see, the meek are strong because they rest in the strong arms of God. The meek... Stand firmly, because as we sang earlier, they are anchored to the solid rock of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the only way that we become meek is the same way that we inherit the land. It's through Christ, in Christ, with Christ. And so we continually look to Jesus. We continually look to Him, see His finished work on the cross, and yield to the continual work of His indwelling Spirit who is at work within us. As was mentioned earlier, next Sunday we enter into Holy Week, uh, beginning with Palm Sunday, where we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into. Jerusalem. A week that we know ended with him being betrayed, being falsely accused, being sentenced to death at a mock trial. And Peter was there, an eyewitness to all of it. And Peter writes this of Jesus Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. But instead, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. But instead, Jesus kept entrusting himself over and over to him who judges justly. And so it is with you and with me. No matter what our circumstance, no matter what we face, no matter what, we keep entrusting ourselves to God. And do you see how this frees you? Do you see how this frees you from having to control your life, from from having to manage everything and make it work? How this frees you then from being arrogant and aggressive from grabbing and pushing and demanding do you see how this frees you from always having to be right because you are anchored to the solid rock of Christ and thus you know that you are already righteous in Christ how it frees you to be content and know peace in the midst of a broken and sinful world Becoming meek is not easy. In fact, it's impossible in our own strength. But Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek. And humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Will you come? Will you come to Jesus? Will you continually come to him? Today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Continually looking to Jesus. Continually depending on him. Because he can and he will teach you meekness. And there you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have come to us and given yourself for us. And that you invite us to come to you. And we pray now, Lord, teach us your determined gentleness and grow us in the strength of meekness. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.